It's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It is Friday, May 22nd, 2020. This is episode number 614, day 65 for me personally, as I record this anyway, that um, I've been in uh, quarantine. What do I do? Well, I go out every, almost every day, almost, at least to do something, you know, and I usually have a valid, important errand once every couple of days, but I also make sure I go out to get a little bit of sunshine or fresh air or whatever, you know, and uh, I, I, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, maybe you're ga- beginning to gather some information. I've been uh, temporarily uh, in Queens, back in Queens in my hometown, uh, where my dad was living until he died recently. And I am now in the process of basically clearing out, I guess, and, and uh, what, what I'm trying to arrange is a move out of New York City for a while. So the original plan was to maybe move to Los Angeles, where uh, my son now is and where his mother is. But I want to, I don't want to have to get rid of everything I own. And I just, uh, rather than just drive everything or ship everything for the, uh, to an apartment that doesn't exist yet, I, I've been potentially planning a move north of the city for a while till I figure it out. And I've been bouncing around within the city for the last couple of years because of my life anyway. You know, I had a place uh, in Brooklyn, and then I decided to move into my dad's because of, uh, uh, you know, just practical reasons. And when my son needed to be with me, I needed a bigger space. So I've been doing this now for a while, and it's it's getting tedious. So I realized, you know, you need to get a permanent, new permanent place, and maybe that has to happen outside of New York just because I don't, I don't know about you, but I personally feel like I don't know that I can go through another one of these rounds. I, as I just said, it's been over two months now, 65 days. Yes, it's, there's some nice upsides to this lifestyle, but mostly it's getting a little tedious. So I figure we moved somewhere, you know, uh, fresh air and mountains, uh, what have you. And, and so I'm, I'm working on that. And even maybe in the next week or two, uh, the next few episodes, I'll have my uh, plans worked out to some degree. And by the way, then I can just throw everything I own into a truck and just drive, a, you know, an hour or two and be done with it. So uh, that, that seems to me to be the best option at the moment. I hope you are figuring out your lives, everybody's lives change is changing, right? No matter what your circumstances, very few, very small number of people's lives have been unaffected in a significant way by the pandemic and just how the world is changing in every manner, every dimension, um, economically and otherwise. Uh, so hang in there and, and, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for everybody. And I'm trying as hard as I can. I get on lots and lots of Zoom calls with friends, with, with uh, all sorts of different produ- everybody that every every almost every invitation that I get, I try to do it if I can. Like you know, if it's some workshop or some sort of presentation or talk or something, I a lecture, whatever it is, I'm trying to engage as much as I can. So that's that's what I'm trying to do to keep sane. Anyhow, 
This is uh, episode number, as I mentioned, 614. We just did a tribute to Lynn Shelton, which the tribute was really just playing the uh, content I've already had recorded with Lynn. I miss her terribly, I hope, uh, to put together something more a little elaborate. Uh, in fact, it's it's on it's on it's on track, where I'm trying to get a few people who were knew her quite well to talk with me about it. It feels a little invasive to do that, you know, it, to to ask people to uh, you know expose a personal relationship when it's still as raw as it must be for them. Uh, and uh, I, 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 one, one friend, very, very, very close friend of hers has already agreed to do it. And I will announce that soon, but I, I also just, it's so appreciative of that. I can only imagine what that must be like. So look for this very, very, very soon. Hopefully in the next matter of days or so, we'll have another episode dedicated to Lynn Shelton. You know, there's been a number of people who have been on the podcast who have passed away, some too young, I guess, but this one in particular just hit me, maybe because it's going on during the pandemic and everything else, and maybe because, uh, you know, another thing, I've had a very recent loss of my own, and perhaps that's why it hit me so hard. But she, you know, just in terms of her incredible outlook, her films, what they meant to me, and her, her such a young age to pass away... I feel I feel like I want to do something for everybody to remember Lynn and 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 it not just be, you know, 24 hours or a week and then we move on, but to really try to keep people in in our hearts and minds, you know. And she was pretty central to the show. I mean, she only did it twice, but I also had a film series she was participated in. You you heard it on the last episode. I don't have to go through it again. But if you haven't listened to it, you may want to listen to the last episode, 613, where there's three, three interviews with Lynn. It's, it's not that long. And look for, in the coming week or two, um, hopefully or so, another episode with friends of Lynn Shelton's. Here now is a conversation with another old friend of the podcast and my own friend. This is Dan Salit. Way, way, way back when I first started this show in 2012, like... When I recorded this conversation with Dan Salit the first time for his last film, The Unspeakable Act, and this was, uh, it was episode number, oh my goodness, it goes, talk about, we go way back. The last time Dan did this show, it was episode 43 in June of 2012, so almost exactly eight years ago. Wow. Anyway, Dan is back. He has a new film. It's called 14. It's terrific. It's uh, beautiful. It is being distributed by Grasshopper Films. As of last week, the film is available to watch. 14 is now playing. If you go to Grasshopper Film slash film slash 14, you can uh, click on the watch button and it, you can choose which theater it looks like where you can screen it. There's a number of... Uh, indie theaters or small chains that are giving you the option to see it. O'Mara and Joe in their 20s have been close friends since middle school. Joe, the more outgoing figure, is a social worker who runs through a series of brief but but intense relationships. Mara, a less splashy personality than Joe, bounces among teacher aid jobs while trying to land a position in elementary education and writes fiction in her spare time. She too has a transient romantic life, though she seems to settle down after meeting Adam, of course, a mild-mannered podcaster. No, a mild-mannered software developer. 
Uh, it soon becomes apparent that Joe, despite her intellectual gifts, is unreliable and her professional life losing and acquiring jobs at a troubling rate. Substance abuse may be responsible for Joe's instability, but some observers suspect a deeper problem. Over the course of a decade, the more stable Mara sometimes tries to help, but sometimes backs away to preserve herself, but never leaves behind her powerful childhood connection with Joe. Film stars Tally Medell as Mara, Norma Cooling as Joe, and the cast also includes Lorelai Romani, C. Mason Wells, Dylan McCormick, Colin Brown, Willie McGee, uh, and a number of others. And uh, what a terrific just group of people. So I was on the set one day, and we, we, t- we talk about that a little bit in this uh, coming conversation here. So uh, without further ado, here right now is uh, my old friend Dan Salit. The name of the film is 14, and it's all here for you on FilmWax Radio. Hey, what's going on here? We've been displaced, man. I mean, obviously she's pretty. But she seems like trouble. She is trouble. She's definitely trouble, but guys usually like her. What kind of music does he play? Some kind of jazz? I don't know, I haven't heard him. Seriously, you've never, like, you haven't seen him practice or anything? I know you're sorry. You're always sorry. Don't let me apologize. Joe, what does it matter? It's always the same. Some shit happened to you, and then the people standing near you get shit all over them. Wow. Everything's different now. It's been a guest room since I was in college. Strange seeing this room again. I know I need to get my medication sorted out. I know I can't keep going this way. Maybe you'll find it. Maybe you'll find a doctor who'll actually let me. Who will listen to me when I fucking tell them. So, Dan, do you remember the first time you were on, which was, again, I just looked it up, it's episode 44, which is like many, it's like one of my, that's an early episode. And it wasn't even a podcast then. Was it before, it was around the time of the uh, New York premiere, right? At BAM Cinema Fest? BAM, it was absolutely, yes, BAM Cinema Fest for... The Unspeakable uh, the Unspeakable Act, which is my introduction to you, as well as Tally and others. And I remember that I had been doing the internet radio at the Bebox Studio in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It was an internet radio company or platform. They basically had somebody in the studio with me every time until your episode. And they had given me a tutorial how to set up the recording equipment and, and do a live feed because it was even though it was internet radio, it was live and it was going out into the internet and into the world oh. live. So when we did it, it we definitely did the ra- the live feed part correctly, but I screwed up the recording part. So, <laughs> so, so the signal is watched, still traveling out to Pluto and beyond? Oh, I think probably that original one. I don't know what happened. It was not captured, though, because <laughs> I'm supposed to, I was supposed to capture it and uh, or, aka record it live as well, and I fumbled that. So you were very nice about it, and you said, oh, we can redo it. So we redid it for the recording part, so there would always be a copy for mm-hmm. replay. And I, But it was even before it was podcasting. So, But I ultimately, when I started podcasting the episodes, which was not long after that, I had the recording from when we redid it. Right. You know, so I have that episode. It has been I don't know if it's still available for listening, but I'll put it on the YouTube channel and this one so people can listen to that interview we did and then they can listen to this brand new one. 
And I, I assume this one will be a little bit better because my style has gotten a little bit... Well, that's good. I'm not sure if mine has. My hair has gotten grayer. People can compare. Both of us, man. Yeah. <laughs> have, have a, definitely more gray hair. Indie film. Uh, indie film does it to you. <laughs> yeah. So it's that 2000... And... That was 2012. 12. Yeah. I think the premiere was in June, so I don't remember exactly the date of, uh, of the... Of the um, of the podcast, but June was when the film played at BAM. Okay. I was very impressed with that film. I felt like you created a, a unique style that I was, I was really, really enjoyed because it st- stood out from a lot of the other independent films that I had been seeing, you know? It was interesting. And... This year I, um, I had an interview last year, I guess, with Kai de Cinema. Uh, Joaquin Lepastier interviewed me, and in his interview... He talked about how familiar my style was to a French audience. It was, he said that I was like an American cousin of the French cinema. And that was such a relief because most, here I'm kind of like the odd guy out. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I could see that. Even contemporary French cinema? Because I, mm. I, I mean, I guess I'm not seeing the, quite the, the amount of French cinema I used to watch when I was also introduced to a lot of filmmakers. So I was watching con- some contemporary cinema, but also trying to catch up with the French, you know, uh, mm-hmm. low budget, stuff. all the, all the films by Truffaut. Oh and, yeah. The, the new way. And, but every, and, and everything else, you know, like just try to catch up with, with all those classics. So I, I, you know, saw a lot of French cinema. So I, I suppose Godard, you could say, or sure, Truffaut, know. Godard were part of the same movement. They called it the Nouvelle Vague. Uh, well, yeah. But, I mean, but, that that influence maybe influenced you. And yeah, for sure. And it was a. I think there's still a certain thread of French cinema, and back mm-hmm. then it was a thread also. Not everything. There's there's French cinema that, you know. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, it's interesting. Also, would the French consider that style experimental per se, whereas we definitely do. Yeah, I think the French are kind of used to it. But if you see yeah. like a big budget French film, you're going to get the same kind of professional sound mixing and everything that you see in a Hollywood mm-hmm. movie. Right. And you'll get their version of Hollywood actors in those big budget films sure. too. And Hollywood lighting and everything. But but I think the French are a little more familiar anyway with this and I don't think it's ever completely gone away. A style that depends a lot on natural sound mm-hmm. and uh, to some extent an unadorned image. That's not like a that's not a necessary factor, but um you know, those things sound familiar to, like, people who, you know, follow French films. Now, it would be weird for me not to bring up that we're doing this remotely or at your place, I assume, in Brooklyn? Yeah, you're... Fort Greene. Okay, in Fort Greene. I'm here, actually, in Queens. In Queens. Um, what neighborhood? The mean streets of Forest Hills, wow. where I, actually, not far from where I grew up, actually. My dad was, uh, I'm yeah. in his apartment. He, you know, passed away, as you know, yeah. a few weeks ago, and I was here to help uh my sister lives nearby but i wasn't nearby i was in williamsburg actually living in williamsburg and then i thought let me station myself here for a while while we're dealing with his health crisis and he was in and out of the hospital he was in a nursing home a rehab center nearby and i thought what would be, was going to be very temporary turned out now to be seven weeks later and now it also i can't move first of all <laughs> yeah Even if i wanted right. to i don't really have the option and i have to clear out his apartment so now it's turned into what will likely be into the summer. 
my probably my friend Christina in Toronto is going through exactly the same thing, living in her oh really living in her mom's house who passed away just a little while ago. It's, yeah, I don't know if she would be. She didn't have the plans to leave, but she can't if she wanted to. Now it's kind of crazy. At least it's very comfortable, and I you know I've been able to set it up as sort of my own place for the uh, at least for the next couple of months, and then my son will be uh, off to Los Angeles to be with his mother, oh, wow. and I might follow for a while depending on. Depending on when, when everything scheduling wise, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, for all the the stuff I have to finish up here, but um, everything is good. Otherwise, are you able yeah. to work or? I'm, I'm, I mean, obviously, you have the film, and you are. That's I want to hear about that and how you're managing. I'm working at home through this uh, pandemic, which is right. nice. So I have a salary, and oh, good. Um, so it's it's not a problem in that regard and i'm not too claustrophobic i'm kind of claustrophilic me either so this yeah. is like not as bad for me as it's for some people a lot of people just want to break the door down and go out and take their clothes off outside or something but i don't <laughs> i don't mind kind and, of, I, and i urge people to do that <laughs> but i'm okay here somehow it's not it's not killing me and i have this huge backlog of films that i that the, the treasures of the universe that i've been not watching because i was going to like contemporary films and whatever plays in theaters and you fell behind well i'm chronically behind and just hundreds of films a year further behind but all of a sudden i'm yeah. like digging into it so there's this ritual screening at night of, of one of the films that's been sitting on my hard disk since the dawn of time i want to see those films so much more that i want to see anything almost anything that plays in a theater so this is a definite bright side to the whole uh you know death and destruction mm-hmm. thing so you have QuickTime files, basically movies sitting on your hard drive. Yeah, movies, some variation thereof. Movies downloads sitting on my hard drive. From uh, I will not, I will not be so indiscreet as to like. Uh, We're not asking to, to identify the the source. They're the source. Yeah, yeah. no need to. But um, but they're generally films you can't get anywhere else. Okay. for what that's worth. Oh, I'd be I'm interested not, in knowing I, some of those. T- I'm not taking money out of like George Lucas's pocket or anything. Yeah, thank you because I know he's hurting. <laughs> yeah, he's. Um, yeah, he needs us. <laughs> so, what's this? Or just a random example, though, that of one of those films. Well, um, last night I, I I I went American, classic American, which is my roots, and I watched a Gordon Douglas film from 1958 called Fort Dobbs, which was really interesting because it was the screenwriter was Bert. Kennedy, who was writing all the Bud Bedecker renowned films right at that time, and this the Western, the West, uh, yeah, Seven Men, Western. Seven Men from Now, uh, Ride Lonesome, Tall T, Comanche Station. Mm-hmm. So these are like kind of a famous cycle of movies, and he was, and this film was very similar to those movies, but it wasn't directed by Bedecker; it was directed by Gordon Douglas, who is. Gordon Douglas. Okay. I'm I'm a fan of Gordon Douglas, but he's he's uh, uh doesn't always seem to be trying as hard as other times. And uh this film was kind of oddly not one of his best even though the material was the sort of material that served Bud Bedecker quite well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was last thing. And wh- wh- who's in that? Um the star was Clint Walker, who was a huh. who was a cowboy uh TV cowboy guy when I was a kid and I don't, you don't see him in that many movies. I believe this might have been his debut. Um Virginia Mayo played the mm-hmm. played the romantic lead. Um I think Andrew Duggan was uh was the friendly sheriff and Brian Keith was a villain. Brian Keith, one know. one of the great actors actually of the American cinema, played a played the played the 
Burt Kennedy villain who has a certain kind of panache always, a certain kind of style. Yeah. You know, it's it's actors like Brian Keith who are deceptively talented. You know, they they make it look so easy that yeah. they're often not given credit and often marginalized. I, yeah. And he did, of course, he did best known for television because it reached the largest audience. I mean, to, it's almost unavoidable. our generation, he was the family right. affair guy. Right. Um, but, right. But opposite Sebastian Cabot. Opposite Sebastian Cabot. <laughs> But um, Brian Keith has a very impressive film yeah. career, which I would urge all of you to like dip into during your quarantine time. Yeah, he was around a long time. Oh, yeah, really, really good actor. Well, and what's on tonight's uh, docket? That, Did you mention that already? No, right? what happens is that my roommate and I, um, I have all these films. Spin a roulette? For, sp- exactly. She picks a letter. Oh. We go to the letter of my list of films that I, I want to see. I, oh. I read them all to her. She makes a first selection. Usually she picks one or two or three. And then if, if she doesn't pick just one, I get to choose from the rest. Mm-hmm. And and she doesn't mind the, the Russian uh, 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 dubbing <laughs> on, your, on your films. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. I have, she does, she's a film person. And she doesn't mind. Okay. But she has different tastes. So it always winds up somewhere different than I would be. But I really like it because I'm seeing like random stuff that I wouldn't have got to quickly. Right. I was re- making a reference to the Russian oh, yeah. uh, approach. They have like these yeah. two or three people that are re- are famous for their, their. So what they do is they just speak over the entire film. Oh. Uh, they re- reenact all the dialogue over the you know the whatever the original language is. So the original uh, language and the, starts, and then you get one second or so before the yeah. before the translation right. obliterates it. Yeah, and so that's how. Millions of Russians watch movies from uh, uh, all over the country, all over yeah, the world. Yeah. Rather, uh, there was a, a film about it, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. But I remembered where they interviewed this woman who did that. And she that? was very famous uh-huh. for her voice. Yeah, for her voice. I'm try- I have to try to recollect. But I was joking that maybe these movies, the source that we had talked about, from where these are coming from, but. Uh, I think I I, ru- I rule that. those out. I run across them every so often, and I don't yeah. I don't bite. <laughs> good, good, probably best. Well, I was uh, glad for the opportunity to finally watch 14. I had been looking forward to seeing it for quite some time. I didn't realize that my big moment in the film... The back of your head. Was, was, was the back of my head was the, like, the last, <laughs> last couple of minutes. <laughs> I thought that scene, considering how many hours we were there, had to... My gosh, what a... What a uh, Oh well, this is—it's certainly not unusual to film a whole day and use a few minutes. No, right. And I was talking to an actor yesterday, and I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you, and I said, you know, the impulse is like I did with Iris Sachs and a, and a very one or two other uh, filmmakers that I volunteered for being an extra on, because it's not demanding in a way that most people would think it's demanding physically. It's demanding uh, patience and um, you know th- th- that kind of thing where you you're, you may be sitting on a bench for six yeah. hours waiting. Just kind of be patient. You have to be quiet. You have to be at, kind of be out of the way. You have to make yourself very sparse until you're needed. The professional and, extra brings a lot of reading material. Right, right. But I, I'm interested in having saw and I said at the top of the of our interview that. You know, yours was a style I was very, I found myself very uh, just connected to and um, 
uh, moved. I don't know about moved, but I was uh, something attracted to it. And so I was very curious to be on your set. So when I saw that that post on Facebook last year, was it, mm-hmm. I guess, last summer? Which one? Which post? The one where you were saying uh, open call essentially for your oh, friends. Oh, yeah, to, yeah. That would, to, to, yeah, yeah. August was the shoot, so it just before that. You were shooting at a location, mm-hmm. which, which will remain nameless or unspoken at this moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. that I was familiar with in the neighborhood in Carroll mm-hmm. Gardens, Brooklyn, where you were shooting it. And so I was, but I was real curious to know what your set was like. So, because I don't have the patience to be an extra too no. often. And if I'm going to do it, I want to do it with a very, you know, select filmmaker let's put that well way. it was a, a kind of a typical day because there's so many people around <clears throat> and um you know it was not usually we're just in a little tiny room somewhere but there were, there mm-hmm. were a lot of people to to keep track of you were all very very cooperative and polite brought reading material and stuff but i don't think the people in the uh, location were uh, especially happy with us by the end of the day i don't know why but we must have we must have done something wrong Oh, really? That's unfortunate. Maybe, you know, it's sort of like uh, I, I've, you know, seen instances like that where people agree to something. You obviously paid them, uh, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I don't know. certainly did. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was... It was raining out, I remember. It's a lot of people, uh, you know, I, it happens pretty often that you, without realizing it, you step on someone's toes. It's not mm-hmm. uncommon. Right. Needless to say, you won't be shooting at that location soon. I, I well, guess. with my yeah. sparse shooting schedule, I can usually count on many years going by before I return to anything. They may forget who you yeah. are anyway, right? But it might be an all-new exactly. group of people <laughs> yeah. running the business where you shot. Very true. I never made films very but, close together. I don't. I think the record would be like six years or something, closest two films I ever made together. And there's now five or four uh, five features? Fe- five something. features and one short. Oh, and that's... One short. Uh-huh. So wow, you have now a, a real. I have a filmography, and yeah. it's just the right time because uh, there's a few. I had a few retrospectives, and there were enough films to make it a, a little retrospective. Yeah, I'd say five is a tipping yeah, point. Yeah, it worked. It's like substantial. It worked. Yeah, let's get back to fourteen. When did you write that? When did you write it? Um, it was a slow process. I don't. I I remember. Um, Talking to uh, Tally about it in the summer. Tally Medell. Tally Medell, who was one of the two stars. I remember talking to her about it in the summer of 2012. The idea had come about. So I think it, in the summer of 2012, I, I knew what I wanted to do and was writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a movie, I, I'm sure this is okay. Stop me quickly if you don't like this direction, but. This movie was the the motivation of this movie was to work with Tally and an actress who wasn't in it, Caitlin Sheel, and uh, I wrote it completely for the two of them, um, but Kate didn't wind up being in it; was too busy or didn't want to do it. So um, the whole mm-hmm. thing was, I've tended to do that. I think like every other movie, I tend to write for people that I want to work with. That's happened in the past as well. Well, I can only imagine. First of all, it's helpful to. Have people in mind because then you can write in their voice. It's extremely helpful. And unless that voice is so incredibly singular and so incredibly specific and unique, somebody else can do it. You know, you may yeah. not be able to envision it at the time, but you know, you pick, the the actor who obviously yeah. played Kate's part. I assume is the 
Other Norma, lead actor. Norma, there. Norma, yeah, Norma What's Cooling. her? Norma Cooling. Norma Cooling. Did a wonderful job. She was very She's good, amazing. I thought. Very natural actor. And uh, I would never have thought for a moment, oh, this would be just slightly better if, I don't know, uh, Caitlin Scheel was in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so. you know, it's true. I, I, I think that Norma aced it, really did a great job. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, was, uh, there were other actors along the way, too. And each one of these people... Right. Uh, creates a kind of phantom movie in your mind, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different than the one that actually transpires. There's mm-hmm. no sense dwelling on it, and I don't have any regrets at all. It's but, hard. You said you started writing this in 2012, or formulating it anyway, in, in mind for Kate and for Tally. And, um, you know, I mean, actors' careers are very uh, obviously unpredictable. So how would they be able to commit... Yeah. Now, I mean, her career has really grown a lot in the last six, six seven, eight years. Yeah, and I Kate's, didn't yeah. I didn't even ask, I didn't say, listen, I'm doing this film for you. Are you going to be around when it's done some unforeseen number of years in the future? Your only uh, other option, I guess, would have been to hold off until she was available. But maybe that's not an option. I, we don't have to talk about that. Yeah, it was. By that it, point, maybe. It didn't really, you know, after, after, uh, Kate was gone. I cast uh, Hannah Gross in, mm-hmm. in the film. Right, and, I, I thought and, that might have been one of the. Actors. And then she got Mindhunter, um, which so it was like a something that you know took her away, and she really wanted to do it, and I really wanted to do it with her. Uh-huh. Um, she's wonderful, and I love uh-huh. her, and I'm really sorry that it, you know it didn't it didn't happen. Yeah. But. Well, if you write more frequently. Or yeah. produce more films uh, more frequently, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. That, that... <laughs> <laughs> it's not all in your control. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I've never had that kind of life, actually, where I was just, you know, working on stuff all the time. I can't imagine what it would be like, even. I mean, certainly most people work faster than I do, but... Well, you're also, as you mentioned already, working, you have a job. I have a full-time job, and filmmaking is difficult. Yeah. For me, for me, it's emotionally difficult. It's really difficult, mm-hmm. and I think some part of me just really is, appreciates having finished it and it being behind me in my rearview mirror. And I just don't want to. I'm not the sort of person that just wants to pick up the pen immediately. I like really want to like draw it out as long as possible. I forget if it was Mary McCarthy or Lillian Hellman, one of those sort of bitter. <laughs> Caustic authors said, "I hate writing, but I love having written." Yeah, um, that's exactly that kind of, what it is. Yeah, writing is is hard, but not the worst of it. Making the movie is much harder than the writing. All kinds of aspects of making the movie pre production is the worst. Um, it's really stressful. A lot it, of stuff has to be done, and it all has to coincide. It all has to come together at the same time. It's made slightly easier when you have a great producer, though, I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I had some producers on this who did some work, which is, you know, usually a lot of times in the past my producers were, like, not film people always or people who were not, you know, didn't have the quite the central involvement. Um, here I had people who are actually, you know, had, had done produced movies before, so that was nice. But there's a fair amount of stuff that's really hard to offload. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's hard for anybody else to do, and maybe I'm not good at the offloading part, but I al- I always wind up like having a really big to-do list, an intimidating to-do list. So uh, that hangs over me during during pre-production. Production is like very 
it, it, you're in a daze, so it's not as bad somehow. It, it's like, it can be rough if it go, things go wrong, but it's not as bad as pre-production because it's happening and you just put one foot in front of the other. It's and part then, of pre-production. Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was, and then post is fun. Right, uh, right. The editing and the color correction and the yeah. titles and all. The post-production, uh, the, but it's part of pre-production setting up the uh, shot list for the production, or do you, you is yeah. that all done yeah. ahead of time so you know where you're no. going to be? I do. That's not. That's, that's got to make it easier. It's not everybody. I'm a little bit of a, kind of a planner, and I plan. It's got to be much easier that way. I wish it. In the it's, during production. It's, it's easier for sure, but it's also, you know, some people wouldn't want to do it. This is like Hitchcock's style. He would always say, you know, I made, I did all the hard work ahead of time. Now I'm just executing it. And I'm trying to, that's the motivation on some right. level. For a person right. who's got a little anxiety, as Hitchcock did, as I do, there's a motivation of pretending it's all done. And now there's just something to follow, a path that you that has already been blazed. Yeah. And yeah, obviously you don't storyboard. I do storyboard. You do storyboard. I totally storyboard. Oh, so let me rephrase. You must storyboard, Dan. <laughs> Pencil and paper, stick, uh-huh. fi- stick figures. Okay, good. Oh, that's helpful I don't, to know. You know. I don't do anything like really elaborate. Like You'd have to hire somebody to do that. Yeah. I would have to hire somebody, and I don't, I don't need it because it's just for me, really, and the camera person who knows what to do. Right, but so you know where the camera's going to go. I know. You know where the, you're blocking the, the actors, etc. I know what decoupage I want. I, I know where I want the cuts to fall, how long I want the shots to last, approximately what the size of the image is, like whether it's close or far. I know all that. And the adjustments that I make later are pretty minimal. They, were, they do sometimes change it, but it's not my practice to change it. So when I start shooting, I have that all done. And I, I can say to the, to the camera people, you know, mm-hmm. ten, I have to do seven setups here. You know, and then mm-hmm. we're going, we have to go to one more place, and there's only two setups there. And mm-hmm. I know, I know that ahead of time. I have to assume that all that preparation does make production go as smoothly as possible. If not, um, I mean, obviously there are many things, un- unpredictable things occur. You know, uh, obviously the that's the chaos that is yeah. a- any kind of production where you have dozens of people involved. So. I think it does make it easier, and there's a possible penalty to be paid. I mean, on the the good side is that if you're a little bit nervous, as I am, it means that you can pretend it's all done already. You, or and if you like want a handle on what's going to happen, it gives you a handle. Mm-hmm. That if there's anything that would have happened because of you know spot, the spontaneity of the moment, you could lose that. There could be something amazing that wouldn't occur to you because you weren't in that mode. You were like comforting yourself on how you'd done all the work and you failed to like failed to fully exploit the moment but you know it's a price that you pay depending on your personality i think there's a price on either side we as we've established 14 which is the, the new film is your fifth feature uh-huh you've written all of your features mm-hmm. you have in other words a lot of experience as a screenwriter now of your own work so when you're writing are you also doing some editing are you anticipating Obviously, you're not going to set, you're not going to have a car or a truck ram into the side of your set because you can't afford that in your budget. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, uh, yeah. but, but I, you, I'm getting to another point. So, but I, I want to ask that first. I, I think I get you. And yeah, you, you tend not, you tend to like think about 
how you can't have a car ramming into something. But you also kind of want not to oh, be thinking constrain. all the time. So, sometimes, I mean, when you're writing dialogue, sometimes it can be helpful not to be thinking about what the camera is going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Because you're you're dealing with people, you're dealing with something something a little bit different. And then later on, it, usually when you're doing it, it occurs to you what, how you might film it. But it's not it, it's not bad to it's not bad to um, to have a separate place in your mm-hmm. mind for that. And then later on, come to it as a as a from a camera point of view. Well, I, I guess that's you know I, I can tell that you're not limiting or constraining yourself by easy practical solutions ahead of time because you one of your characters in the latter part of the film is a child mm-hmm. and a very young child and that was that was the one i encountered the day that i was there yeah uh, on the set so and i saw you spent um a lot of time trying to get a <laughs> trying to get a particular type of performance out of this very young child who is having any difficulty with it Lorelai, was Why amazing. would you write that into the screenplay? It was the first thing I thought of when I thought when I thought of the the idea of the film when I realized it was a movie, and I remember telling Tally at my birthday party in two thousand and twelve about it. That mm-hmm. was this. That was the one scene I had really vivid. The whole thing I had the the thing that made me want to do it was that there was a there was a young child that she heard the story of her mother's past, that she realized at this funeral that. You know, at you, this oh, scene, she realized she realized in the last scene that that she was like, you know, recapitulating something. Right. So so that was the first. That was what made me want to do it. It all kind of followed from there. How did you cast this particular little girl? It, uh, you know, I can't exactly remember whether I was looking, but Lorelai is the daughter of um, my hair and makeup person, Kelly Miller. Oh right! Who, I, now that I'm recalling that, that's right. I was and there. She, yeah, and and she, he and I did we did two films together. She was also did hair makeup on the Antigua Act, and she's wonderful. She's a family friend. She used to work for my brother uh, in in Florida years ago. So I don't remember at which point um, Lorelai came into the came into the picture. It might have, I think my family might have like suggested it, and but she was um, not not written for her, but. Uh, in in it for a long time. As it turned out, like a lot of smart kids, she got bored with what goes on on film sets. So right away, you could see after two takes, it was going to be like boring for her. And you've got so many outtakes of her rolling her eyes and sighing, like, "Oh my right. God, you want to do this again?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing maybe that you don't anticipate because you might find a child that's intelligent enough to intellectually understand yeah. that this is make-believe and that they're going to be you know like oh like they see on tv but this is work and they're going to have to be you know try they're going to pretend but they have to make it come off convincing they have to memorize dialogue and <laughs> they can maybe do some of that but then you you know pretty well but then they, there's this other layer that no one can anticipate which is that they're there for six hours <laughs> they're going to go would- nuts it would evolve in the most interesting way. Usually, yeah. we we do a take or two, and I'm not like a one take kind of person usually, so she had to endure that. And then on take two, it's like I don't want to do this anymore. Her, her mom, who's on the set, would threaten or bribe or do whatever to make sure that you know at a certain point the kid realizes she's not going anywhere until the, I'm happy with the scene, and so. And she wasn't the sort of person just to like, you know, 
dig her heels in at a certain point she right. decided okay and so she would start like playing a little bit and you could see her humoring us you could see her like you know mm-hmm. playing playing the game so she could like get off the damn set um but she would do it she would play the game for real and her 10th take might have been really fresh and completely different because she'd gone through all these emotional phases right. finally decided these lunatics are never going to let me out of this room unless i play along and then you she, break you broke her will once she just or, no, no i'm kidding right? happened, or, no, yeah, she, it's, it's she, true it's she realized she was a captive but like kids are captives anyway kids are like subject to true. power and so when they it's called to, school like, it's called everything I, yeah my kid is feels like he was ca- until recently now he's captive here but he was <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's the way it is. So when she would get to take six or seven or whatever, and she mm-hmm. realized that she wasn't going to get off the set until I was happy, until her mom was happy, it did, it, there was no re- trace of rebellion in her, in her seventh, eighth, ninth take. She would decide, <laughs> oh, well, you know, and she would start playing with it because she had no alternative. Right. But she wasn't, like, she wasn't thinking like a prisoner in the seventh right. or eighth take. She was thinking like somebody who had to do it, so might, might as well do a good job. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so would you, that, even though she was, had a very, very brief scene, it was demanding emotionally. So she had to act. And yeah. um, so would you write a, such a scene again in the future for such a young person? I think that I, there are a few things probably that I've conceived over the course of the years that I would not do again. But this one wasn't, didn't turn out so... You know, different from what I had in mind. That I don't. I, I think I don't think I would dodge it if it if if it happened. I mean, it happened. It was an aesthetic idea before it was about any actors. Right. And so I and so I needed it. Having decided to do this movie, I needed that scene. But I think I don't think I would say, "Uh oh, I'm thinking of a kid again. Let's not think of any more kids." I don't think I would. I don't think I would do that. It was, it was maybe more demanding because the little kid is uh, the child. Is I don't think it's a spoiler to say she's uh, Tally. Tally's character's daughter yeah. and uh, required because of the emotional uh, weight of the moment required Tally to break down yes. each time that she did the scene so she, they were like that'd be harder on Tally Ta- Tally, Tally was like a, an essential part of this whole thing I mean she's awesome with kids in the first place and I knew it and well she I, is like a kid yeah she well the first part of her uh, when I first saw footage of her for the Unspeakable Act, one of the things that I saw was her leading a whole room of kids in some kind of dance oh. therapy job that she had. Oh. And she, she always has been like this. She's really, she's good at it. And I knew all along that, you know, I was going to have a child in this movie, but it was going to be Tally working with her. I knew that Tally was going to be important. And she was super important. And she had her own rapport with Lorelai, mm-hmm. which was different than my rapport. And it, it, interestingly, I didn't, I kind of was thinking possibly that Tally would wind up like I would be directing through Tally, that Tally would establish the relationship and that would, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite that way. As it turned out, Tally and I had different roles, different relations to Lorelai. And, you know, as a, we both had played an important role and Lorelai knew that I was the director. So I was like this, authority figure but she wasn't completely rebellious against authority i think that kind of like worked with her a little bit mm-hmm. um whereas if, if it had been tally as a child I don't, authority is definitely not the way to go with tally but but with lorelei i think she didn't really mind the fact that i was like this mysterious person pulling the strings when i had on i mentioned barry sonnefeld recently on the show and he talked about 
maybe the most important uh, a director's role is just making endless decisions. You have to be good at just making a decision. Often it's like, is it a red folder or a green folder, uh, Barry? The red one. I mean, just yeah, somebody but, who does that and owns that is what they're looking for. Day for Night by Truffaut. There's, yeah. That, that's, I forgot know, about it. Truffaut's yeah. character says a director is a person who answers questions. And there's a scene where exactly that happens. Some all these, like one person after another comes up to them and says, do you want this prop or that prop? And he goes, that one, that one. Like, there's this whole interlude of, of uh, Day for Night, which is dedicated mm-hmm. to that that concept. Yeah, no, it's been a long time. Actually, I kind of, yeah, I, must, I want to watch that again. Unfortunately, I, I have the Criterion channel, so I don't think that's going to be too hard. Uh, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> the story, which, you know, I, I guess I should have, I'm burying the lead, but the story of 14 is about, well, on a, one level, it's about two friends, one who takes on the role of the caretaker for the other in the sense of always... Maybe one you is should always... just spoil the entire movie. Maybe there'll be an increasing strain on the conversation if we have to keep this movie a secret. Well, I'm okay. trying... I think that's... it's important to set it up at the very that's least. Okay. That, that's okay. He, go, go, go is, ahead. Did anything I say, is that... That's not... That's part of the... No, no. That's part of the... the sure. The, dyna- the, the given dynamic of this, this relationship between these two friends. One is more needy and um, one uh, has become more needy for sure yeah and um, it is a series of scenes of of growing up in a way yeah you know that's the way I I saw it one was more stuck you know sure and um, watching other people grow but it's also a love story between these I mean the the mm-hmm. the one who has the greater you know command of reality at that point in life, also loves the other one desperately as, with this child's love that will never go away. Looked up to her so much, always. So you have this funny thing going on where there's this total adulation of Norma's character by Tally's character, and yet the action of the film for a good long time is kind of the opposite. It's like Tally, like having to deal with one crisis after another, having to like mm-hmm. make sure that the situation doesn't explode, that Joe like applies for the things she has to apply for. So, yeah. it's, but the, but it's exactly the opposite under the surface. So that's texture. That's like something that's in your mind when you're writing and something that's in mind when you're, when you're directing it. But it does point out how, Friendships are not always built on this kind of, you know, ideal, beautiful, uh, mutual respect and love that's healthy because you choose your friends, mm-hmm. right? So if, you know, you discard those that aren't, but actually a lot of friendships are, are there are other types of friendships that are not built on a healthy foundation um, where, like you say, one character in, in this particular relationship idolizes the other. That's not a basis for a friendship. Nor is uh, the uh, leaning on or exploiting that from the other friend. You know, there's I mean, so many things. How many, how many of us... It's a synergy, but I don't know if it's a healthy one. How many of us can claim health? You know, these things happen. <laughs> even, a, even a relationship that we might... You, you, you and I, <laughs> what we have here. It's very healthy. <laughs> it's very healthy. The, <laughs> every, <laughs> every 10 years we get together for a podcast. <laughs> if you had to do it every 10 days. Um, no, it's like, but it's... There's these these feelings are under the surface. They mm-hmm. cope with them as best they can, but everybody has these complexities. I certainly was never thinking of that as, 
you know, a relationship that never should have been. It was an important relationship. It is an important relationship. It mm-hmm. doesn't. It's not always comfortable for either one of them at this point. They wish it would be better for them if it weren't the way it was. But you know, I, well, you I, created I, it, and, yeah. and and yet you have. I created, and I but think you feel. I created it, and I think it is representative of the human condition. <laughs> I don't think that, like, I the idea of, like, a perfectly harmonious relationship, that would, like, where's the movie? Right. And also, o- only long-term relationships, well, generally long-term relationships, can sustain the imbalances that naturally affect relationships that, that occur. I yeah. mean, you know, you know I, I've lost a very important relationship because I just went through an extended period that was not health, healthy for the relationship. So, you know, and, and uh, so I understand that, you know. It happens that you have to cut things off sometimes in life. Yeah. But, but when you're making a movie or when, when I am making a movie and thinking about something to do, that practical thing of having to, to cut stuff off sometimes or having to live your own life, Mm-hmm. I would, that's never central. I mean, the love is central and the connection is central and all the other... I mean, you wouldn't make a movie... You wouldn't make a movie motivated by a desire to... Well, I wouldn't make a movie motivated by a desire to, like, demonstrate good hygiene and friendships. Mm-hmm. It, it, I much prefer to make a movie that's, like, centered on, like, a great large feeling, you know? Mm. A great a kind of passion between people. That's, like, a kind of a romantic thing, I guess. But, right, and that... And that trumps the part in the expression the 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 intellectual yeah completely it it it, you should feel through this whole movie before you even know it you should feel that it's not just an accident that these people go that there's feeling there that there's a connection there that there's a past there even if it's burdensome in the present Mm. i would i would never want to focus on the the burdensome thing without without this great passion that you know young mara had for young joe and still has, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have bothered making the movie. And so you create this story, and you feel, then once you've finished it, it is an organic thing, and that yeah. whatever happens on the set in front of the camera is a. That's there. That's. I mean, you're director, but at the same time, yeah, you have to you, listen to it. You do, and you, it's like interesting. You you want to try to cast it and set it up so that you could realize an initial feeling and usually that works like in Mm -hmm. this particular case i didn't feel like i had to sacrifice my initial feeling but the very first movie i made um long long ago in 1985-86 i I cast it casually too casually i didn't know what i was doing i had a, a naive idea about what actors were and were not capable of and um, I was spent a lot of time really trying to make this lead actor be something he wasn't. Mm. And I, I, I alienated him. I lost him emotionally very early in the shoot. It was a kind of a, a, a really difficult shoot, and I was unhappy with his performance at the time. But now when I see it, I think to myself, he... Uh, taught me something he taught me that people are irreducible that there's a movie there when you when you put a camera on a person (laughs) and now i feel like he was good in my movie he was always real he didn't like to not be real this might have bothered me at the time because his reality isn't what i had planned but now i look at it and i see somebody who simply couldn't be fake and didn't want to be fake 
on camera. And that is a lot to be said for that. That's like a big part of cinema. So, you know, it's... it's. You're talking about 35 years ago. My goodness, uh, you had to have been right out of college. No, I was... I'm I'm a little older than that. So I made my first movie when I was 30. I was on the set. Really? I turned 30 while I was shooting it. Hmm. Um, And, uh... And I was... You know, I had all these ideas about how to make movies, and some of them I still do. Like, we were talking before about the storyboarding and knowing what all... I I did that right away. But I didn't... Learning how to work with people, with actors, was an evolving thing, and I was pretty naive at that point about that. But I've had occasion to see it recently, because I had... It showed showed in Spain when I was over in Spain in summer of 2019. I got to see it again. And... You know, it's like I really like the fact that guy, that the guy can't be fake. He doesn't know how to be fake. He doesn't want to be fake. He doesn't have the vocabulary to make himself fake. He doesn't have the, the, the training to like fake things. Mm-hmm. I real, I appreciate that now. Even if he wasn't the character I conceived originally, mm-hmm. I I appreciate it. And you know why people are together? Why two people should do something together? That's so mysterious in the first place that you could really, in most cases, cast. A completely wrong person for for what you want to do, and and still suggest some real, real thing about human relationships and how people might fall together. If you look at the people in your life, you don't necessarily see people that, that you know casting central would have put, put together. No, you're right. I don't know that I would have, and that, it's very true. It's an interesting thing. I never thought of it that way. You know, you your life is cast uh, in terms of the people that are in your life. You're not necessarily always the casting director because some percentage of those people are given to you, handed to you, whether or not you're uh, mm-hmm. were just chosen. That and then or not. to the but extent- it's, and you it rankles you. But uh, one day you're like, I'm glad that person's in my life. You you learn to love them for even though they complicate your life. And here's the extra factor. You might not have chosen them, but your unconscious might have chosen them. Our okay. unconscious, right. unconscious hair powerful. doctor, continue. Please. No, this is well. You can't, you can't, you can't like uh, know anything yeah. about people without dealing with the unconscious, and and it's it's more powerful than our mm-hmm. conscious, and it it gets its way almost all the time. Mm-hmm. So when you see people and you think, what are they doing together? You should be like, there should be a little light bulb going on, like aha. The whole once I had a therapist who like. I was telling him the story, and he held his finger up like that, and he said, "Behold the great power of the unconscious." <laughs> it was very dramatic, but I really he was, being, was he trying to be ironic. He was. It was. A, it was perfectly civilized, normal thing. He was like smiling. He was making yeah, a right. point. So to it me. was meant to be. Yeah. He, uh, he was super nice, having, but he right. but he was saying something that I came to realize had a lot more uh, was a lot more central to life than I re- mm-hmm. than I than I realized at the time. I see. You had a breakthrough. <laughs> I wish it was. I wish it was a breakthrough for me. But anyway, it was an artistic. <laughs> it was an artistic breakthrough. It was to pay artistic dividends. So it's called fourteen. You also cast some non-actors, right? C. Mason Wells, who uh, I know from, I think, is it the Quad Cinema? Yeah, yeah. He he was the uh, he... one of the pro- head programmers. <laughs> now he's at, now he's at uh, like Kino Kino Lorber. Oh, oh, very good. Right. Okay. Uh, I um, didn't realize he was at Kino Lorber. Uh, oh. He's mm-hmm. he's a non-actor, but he's he's acted a fair amount actually, oh, okay. and he, he he's a non-actor in the sense that I don't think he ever has had 
training and he has to rely on his intelligence, uh, you know, rather than on, on, you know, professional mm -hmm. techniques. But mm -hmm. he's not the most non-actor person on the set. He's like been in front of a lot of cameras mm -hmm. and, and always does well. Mm, very good. And it premiered at... The premiere was Berlin. Sun Berlin. Berlin. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you had been thrilled about that. I was thrilled about it for sure. I mean, I was I was aiming for it, uh -huh. uh, but it wasn't certain to me that it was going to happen. Right. And you know, where I, was? Go ahead. I was going to say I kind of knew that my career had been a, was a little bit better than it had been before. At the time of Unspeakable Act, Berlin would have seemed like I might have tried for it, but I wouldn't have had any hopes really, or wouldn't have had any expectations. But around this time, I thought it was possible, maybe. Yeah, the bump of the Unspeakable Act success. Yeah. To, and then this one was clearly yeah. even maybe enough step of a, yeah. at least, you know, the same level just, of quality and what people were going to... I didn't know the level of quality at that point, but it was just a little bit, you're a little further and you're, and people know you a little bit better. Journey. You can Artistic journey. You can reasonably hope for a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the American premiere. The American premiere was actually I, I I didn't really work that very hard, and I wanted to I wanted to defer it. It turned out it was Mill Valley, um, which is California. Not, yeah, which is a nice festival. I heard I, great things about it, but I I didn't go, and I wasn't um, I wasn't working the American side of it. Okay, did that have any impact on the subsequent? implosion of <laughs> theatrical was there ever going to be a theatrical then i mean because if you're yeah. if you build up a, an american i mean the berlin thing is you know you got at the top let's say three or four international festivals yeah so that's that's a major thing if you didn't have a, that yeah. you I, I mean you have to have something in order to get the film in front of distributors it was nice and i had like some other very nice festivals and uh -huh. grasshopper i can't remember at what stage Grasshopper came on to distribute it, but I was totally expecting to be in theaters right now. Right now, I expected to be in theaters. Right. So you know, obviously the 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 plague has something to do with that. You know, change, but it would have happened. It, you would have had a you would have had a theatrical. I would have had a theatrical. Yeah. The the, the last time I uh, when I was distributed by Cinema Guild for Unspeakable Act, it was not yeah. it was not a theatrical. The, the 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 contract had to do only with home video and educational and stuff. But this time, it was supposed to be theatrical. So you could have, yeah, I guess I could easily have seen it at the Metrograph or the Film Forum or something. They would have done it. Yeah, it might. Who knows what will happen in future? I don't know if the world sure. will assemble. I don't. I, I mean. It's interesting to speculate what, uh, even as distribution has now got this huge hole in it, so does production. So I right. don't know what's going to happen. There's going to be a big hole, a traveling hole that maybe the two will meet and maybe everybody will have their premieres in in, in the in the future. Who knows? I'm supposed to uh, write and um, I'm working on a, a special filmmaker magazine edition. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of uh, overseeing uh, the special issue on film schools. So, because they yeah. do it every every, they have an annual issue uh -huh. every summer. This one is a dedicated digital issue now because, because. So it's not going to it's not going to print. So, I one of my tasks is to talk to you know faculty about uh -huh. what does film yeah. school look like. I mean, you know, obviously they're all probably in the process of figuring out what the fall and the next 
spring is going to look like. But, you know, what does a new film school education look like? What is a new what, uh, <laughs> shooting films for the students? What, what are those going to, you know, <laughs> look like, et cetera? You know, there are people who, if you want to make a movie, you're going to pick up a camera in your in your quarantine. And if you want to take a break, then... Look at, what was it, Jahafi? What was it, Jahafi? Uh, 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 Panahi. Panahi, rather. Panahi. Yeah. Excuse Jahar me. Panahi. Jahar Panahi was in yes, quarantine. He was in, he was in house, under house arrest. House arrest in... If, yes. Where, um, in Tehran. In Tehran. Yeah, right. Didn't stop him. Didn't stop him. Even the, did, Not only being inside, but he it was illegal. It didn't stop uh, Sophia Budanovitz, who just made a little short film based on this essay I wrote for Filmmaker Magazine. I wrote an essay oh. about, about Arnji the cat, the Hollywood cat. And Sophia, uh, I was talking about Sophia. To the, uh, I was talking about this essay to Sophia when we were both in Vienna this year. Mm-hmm. And she kind of conceived the idea of making a film about it. And she executed it while we were all uh, locked down. So, Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'm going to check out it, both of those it's things. On, it's online right now. But, uh, I mean, it might not be online by the time this gets gets you know broadcast. I don't know. But Sophia is the sort of person who, like, I think she likes to make movies, and she she just works that way. Yeah. So so. Well, the, I think the camera is is being used by more people more than ever right now. Uh huh. For some purpose. Is it? Yeah. Whether it, maybe it's not storytelling. Yes. Yes. Well, but, a lot of us are looking at these like Zoom screens and stuff, right. which I wonder. You know, it looks like a it looks like a '60s De Palma movie, really. Are these Zoom screens? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I actually purchased because I, I don't know if you noticed, but I've been doing a lot of music and posting because uh, nobody knows me that I've been a musician all my life. Uh-huh. And I'm a songwriter and a musician. I played jazz guitar for many years, and then I Ooh, but I always just like to strong. Well, I've been posting the music to more to my this my summer camp community. Uh huh. And then I leaked a few out, a few got out, and then I put it start putting them on Instagram, and everybody's like. What is this? Yeah. I had no idea you could play. This is fantastic. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, the voice is what it is. It's pretty, uh, my voice isn't uh, great. So I try to use it to the best of my ability. But, um, you know, it's kind of cool. Um, but I bought a uh, wide-angle lens uh-huh. because I, I'm thinking more cinematically when I shoot these things. <laughs> it looks kind of cool to have a, a larger or, you know, it wider, does. wider. <laughs> But you know, reality and cinema bends see, around there reality. Go. There you go. Now you can see. Now you look like you're in a Stanley Kubrick movie. <laughs> a little fisheye thing going on. A little fisheye thing going on. Absolutely. But you know, it works the other way too. You don't have to make. You don't have to make things cinematic. Cinema is right. going to bend around what we're doing. Interesting. It's as though you've thought about it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fourteen. Okay, so it's uh, it's going to be available thanks to Grasshopper Films, uh, yeah. and it's Grasshopper Films, right? Yes, it is. Okay, and there. How how do people see fourteen? Oh well, it's going to be seen uh, in. It's going to be playing online on the websites huh. of a number of participating theaters. And Beautiful. And in fact, Grasshopper already has a page for fourteen, and on that page, there's a little section that has the logos of. I think the 15 theaters that as of yesterday had come that's, on board with it. That's and the amazing. Way, 
the way the world is these days, uh, distributors are keeping up their relationships with theaters, which I guess, of course, they would, even though I suppose they could cut them out of this and just you know stream this stuff directly, but they have relationships and they're trying to preserve them. Good so, for them. So the theaters get to stream the film. There's a split between the distributor and, and the theater. So if you want to support your local theater... What about theater, you? You get paid by the distributor. Okay. Uh, I, anyway... Uh, I try not to think about money. Yeah, I, I get right. pay, I get paid by by. You're in a lucky company. position, also because you were you you're employed. But go ahead. I have a day job. Yeah, I know, but you know. But no, but that's you made something of value. But go ahead. The way it works is that you know grasshoppers yeah. shelling money out. If they make more money than they shell out, I'll I get some, I'll get some. Right, I got you. You're, but, you're you're right. You're like a producer in your own situation. <laughs> no, you get a, the proceeds. It's a typical contract, and I, you know, I hate to think what my life would be like if I had to live on making movies. Jesus. Right. Well, yeah, that's all the government subsidies. You could, don't they help? All those government subsidies you get all the time for your filmmaking? <laughs> do you detect my sarcasm? I do detect your sarcasm, but for the first time, a few Europeans have talked to me about trying to tap into that very source of income that you're talking about. It's all it's all very amusing to me at this point. I mean, I'm playing along with everybody. It's like a big practical joke. I, I, if if it falls through, they're not gonna. I'm not gonna have my life. You know, right? Be destroyed. I understand. You're you're of the mind you're gonna make films regardless. But it'd be interesting to see you in uh, shooting your next film in Europe, or not make them regardless. But I'm certainly not counting on money for them from anybody else. Understood. So Google Grasshopper Films 14. Spell it out, and you will find a, a, a number of options of how to see the film online and um St- starting on may 15th now i have a nice screen uh here yeah tv pretty big and so what i did last night is like i have uh, I, I saw my link a little differently but it doesn't matter i have an <laughs> apple t- i have apple tv so i'm able to link it to the tv and watched it pretty big yeah yeah Hopefully i also have a projector and i could have done that too i have a projector a lot of people have made a lot of speculations about the difference between theatrical and home stuff. I, it's not like my emphasis is not on the differences. My emphasis is on the similarity. Nicely said. You're a, uh, you know, lemon to lemonade type of guy or <laughs> see the, the glass half full kind of person. But also the theatrical experience is, is a communal experience. And I think that's another thing. So if you are listening, when you stream Dan's Film 14... Make it a watch party. Get some of your other friends to do the same thing and watch it together. Tally is in it. Name the other folks. See Mason Wells I mentioned. Who else is in the film? Norma Cooling and Tally Norma. are are the two leads. Right. Um see Mason Wells, Chris Wells as we call him. Is, Chris. It is it has a supporting role. Um, um there's, there's a whole bunch of uh of people with uh, my, the back of my head is in it and um, The back of your head is in it in the very first shot in the very last scene. Right. That is my head. I recognized yeah. it. Yeah. But you provided one of the best uh, still uh, photos for set, oh, right. set photos of me giving Lorelai a plane ride around the around the. Feudal. I have a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we can leak it. And what did I want to just say? It was probably me. Oh, and I also got to uh, one of my uh, not recent, but not that long ago, one of my guests came on my show. That I met sitting, um, waiting for in oh, between yeah? shots. Who was Scott, that? Scott Hammer or S.A. Hammer. Oh, yes. Who, uh, who, who, was, who was playing the funeral director. Oh, is that right? I don't yes, can't remember he, that. Oh, okay. He, 
he was playing the funeral director. He only was in one shot after right. after Tally cries. He steps in to the, to the oh. frame and offers her. I can't remember what he offers. Lunch, her. the, the yeah. a snack, maybe. Yeah, may, no, that... I can't remember. It's my own All movie. Right. I should really remember. <laughs> I well, I recommend before. you. I recommend you uh, stream it today. <laughs> is it is it available now? No, it's not available until May fifteenth. Thank you for reminding me of that. Well, when when people hear this, it will be available now. To stream. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make sense to put it up before that. So after yeah. listening to this conversation, they'll, they'll be so inspired. They Sorry, this is your one. You're, you're one move ahead of me in this game of three dimensional chess. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, <laughs> used to it. All right. Well, terrific. Uh, I look forward to the next time we're able to do this. We don't have to necessarily wait for a film. We can talk about anything you like. Um, yeah. It's, my, it's, given my pace of filmmaking, we're better off if we don't actually wait. Yeah. Well, we'll be, uh, hey, said, we'll be hard of hearing and have all sorts of a, one of the unanticipated benefits, I guess, of doing this podcast for and for as long as I've done it, because it's been through two of your films now. So, you yeah, know, it's a long so while. A long... <laughs> uh Whereas some other filmmakers are under third or fourth, but that's okay. There's no rush. <laughs> it's not a competition. Uh, but it is that I've been able to bring people back on, in some cases over and over, and it's kind of created a nice community. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate bringing you back on because, you know, obviously you're, you're a, a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy anyway. You so. came in at a time when I think a, commu- a sense of community was starting to form. You know, this thing always goes in, in, in waves. But back right then in 2011, 2012, I think a lot of people were starting to realize that there were yeah. a bunch of filmmakers coming out of New York and other places. They were right. getting to know each other. They were getting to see themselves as a little bit of a movement. Yeah, I agree with that. I think so. That's kind of right. And I have a, uh, I've, I, I have so many friends from that exact period that I met in Absolutely. 2011, 2012 that, you know, and I was lucky enough to do something like this, which was like had almost like infrastructure to create and maintain friendships because and you know you're doing yeah and it does so much as i'm doing trying to do some you know goodwill here i was in argentina in the fall at mar del mm-hmm. plata and uh owner tukel was down there with is his, that right with his movie oh. and he and i i met him when we both premiered yep. our movies at sarasota right before you i met you but in the meantime he's made like 10 movies <laughs> 20 movies and i made, <laughs> i made one but whatever that's that's good yeah yeah he's a good friend of mine I know. Good filmmaker, too. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, Dan, uh, thank you for making time. And we'll post this right after the film becomes available. So people, like I said, they can pop right over and and watch it after this. And uh, we'll uh, we'll do whatever we can to get the word out about it. uh, Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day ahead. Okay. All right. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.
That's the new single, April, Black and Blue, from Gabrielle Marlena, a great artist. Subscribe to her on Spotify. Listen to her new single and all of her other music, and we'll keep in touch with her new music and a new album that's coming out soon. We'll be back in uh, no time at all. Oh, so much coming up. I've been talking about Frank Santo Padre, the co-host of the Gilbert Gottfried uh, Amazing Colossal Podcast. Allison Anders... My friend Jeffrey Gurian, who just got over a terrible case of uh, the COVID-19 virus, he survived and is doing well. We also have the uh, director and uh, comic actor Clark Duke coming up with his new film. It's called Arkansas. Uh, Mark Cousins, the nonfiction filmmaker from Scotland, as well as documentary filmmaker Nina Davenport. And much, much more coming up. Lots of special stuff lining up, folks. So keep tuning in. Leave us a star rating review on, on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever app you use. Of course, we're still we're also on Spotify. Thank you, and continue to take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time. Broken threads, broken springs, broken idols.